This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Oh, Father, sharpen our eyesight that we may see Christ better. Open up our ears that we may hear and know Him better. And strengthen our will and soften our hearts that we may respond to Him in the right way. For His glory we pray. Amen. Now I'll begin with this question. What is your version of Jesus? What is your version of Jesus? And how do you approach Him? How do you approach Him? Now there are many versions of Jesus in the world. If you just do a search of Jesus' t-shirt, you can find enough to shock you. Jesus can be linked to the gym, can link to coffees, to guns, to muscles. And there are some that simply uses Jesus for kind of political satire or political jokes. There's one which I refuse to put up, but it says, such and such precedent spans, but Jesus saves. You know, you have others who are kind of just outright blasphemous for the sake of humor. And still there are others, religions or cults, who will interpret Jesus using quotes or perhaps misquotes from the Bible. And what they proclaim, it totally shapes the followers' views of money, of fame, of sex, of relationships, of purpose, of war, of politics, or everything conceivable under the sun. How we view Jesus will affect how we approach Him. So what is your version and my version of Jesus? Because that will totally affect how we approach Him with some very serious implication. Now, two weeks from now, we'll enter the third discourse of Jesus' teaching using parables. But before we reach the parables, we need to set a kind of context of how people are starting to form their views of Jesus. And that will set the stage of how they will respond to the parables of Jesus. So come with me today and next Sunday as we see how the world's view of Jesus collides with Jesus' own view of himself. So as we come to chapter 11 of Matthew, we have already seen crowds kind of gathering around Jesus. They are drawn to him because he speaks like no other teachers, and they are drawn to him because he does miracles like no other doctors. And the crowds are gathering to Jesus for sure, but you know what? Except for a few that kind of spoke up, we don't really know what are the views of the crowds that are gathering around Jesus. But, but that's not surprising, isn't it? Because everyone will come to this Jesus, you can speak very charismatically or you can dance miracles, it doesn't matter, people gather to him. But the question is, what is their view of Jesus? The time is coming when those who are listening in on Jesus' words and those who are seeing the miracles of Jesus, they will have to give their own conclusion of who is Jesus. And no one can escape the question, who is Jesus? And what will we do if our view of Jesus contradicts the one that he's going to present himself uh, with? So throughout chapter 11 and chapter 12, this week and next week, there will be plenty of engagement between Jesus and the people around him. And perhaps we too will find ourselves amongst the crowds. 
and we too must confront our view of Jesus. So without further ado, let's jump into chapter 11 from verse 1 to 19. In fact, open up your passage as you look at verse 1 and verse, verse 1 to verse 3 with me. Let me read this for us. After Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, John had already appeared in Matthew. In chapter 3, he was the great messenger who was meant to kind of pave the way for God's Messiah to arrive, God's anointed one. And John, at chapter 3, he boldly declared, Judgment is coming. You better repent before the Messiah arrives. According to John, he says this, The axe has already been laid. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down. So John was expecting judgment to come soon after the arrival of the Messiah. And he had already declared that the Messiah is Jesus himself. Because the prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah chapter 10, just before he speaks about God's anointed, Isaiah said this. He said, He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. Those who are not with God will be cut down. And the appearing of Jesus would mean, at least for John, that judgment for the world has arrived. And John says with a, with a winnowing fork, the Messiah will come. He will gather those who are of the kingdom and he will burn up the rest who are not. So now even as John is in prison, he closely monitors Jesus. He's listening to the news about Jesus. But when he start hearing miracles and, and people gathering to him, there, there's lots of great things, but there's no judgment. John starts to feel a bit kind of, Uneasy, in fact, uncertain. People are loving Jesus' miracles, but judgment has not fallen. So poor John, who's stuck in prison, he needs to figure this out. Has he got it right? Does he even got it right who he is? So he sent his disciples to Jesus, saying, verse 3, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? John is in this crisis here, he needs answer. But Jesus, instead of giving him a direct answer of yes, I am or no, I'm not, Jesus invites John and his disciples to re-examine their understanding of God's Messiah. Jesus says to John's disciple in verse 4, look at it, go back and report to John what you hear and see. What did he hear and see? The blind receive sight. None has been recorded in the Bible prior to this. The lame walk, the lepers cleanse, those who have been separated from God, God's temple, God's people. They're cleansed and are brought back. Those who are deaf, they can hear the voice and the message of Jesus. Those who are dead are risen from the grave. And the poor are hearing and receiving the good news. For John, who is familiar with this kind of Old Testament, he's starting to recognize Jesus is not saying, Look, these are miracles. You should believe me like the crowd. They're starting to notice that Jesus is starting to quote Isaiah himself. And this is what Jesus actually is quoting. John will have known this. He's from the lineage of the priests. This is what Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 to verse 6. 
Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And again, Isaiah 61, The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind out the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Now, both of these passages tells us that when God's anointed the Messiah, He comes, He will bring blessings and favor to the people. But I just want to pause here for us a moment and relook at these two passages uh, with the context of it. Uh, in fact, let me read it for you and let's look at what it means. Isaiah 35. Let me just read one verse before this. Verse 4, it says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense, the recompense of God will come, but He will save you. And again, Isaiah 61, we read verse 1, but verse 2 says this, To proclaim the favor, favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. The context of the passage as Jesus was referring to Himself actually speaks of both salvation for God's people, but judgment for God's enemies. Okay, we don't have time to look into Isaiah in its full context, but perhaps John's focus on the judgment by the Messiah against the enemies of God is so strong that he couldn't, he couldn't just recognize as much the blessings that the Messiah must bring with him as well. But the truth is, it is the Messiah who has to decide what blessing comes and when blessing comes and when judgment Come. So Jesus intentionally speaks not of judgment, but of blessings, so that John and his disciples will have to reconsider their view and their picture of the Messiah. So Jesus is doing what the Messiah is, has come to do, but will John see it? We'll soon see that the Messiah, even though he didn't say it here, he will bring judgment but that's not what John needs to recognize at the moment. He needs to recognize also of the salvation that the Messiah has to come to offer. And so Jesus concludes in verse 6, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, dear friends, John is called to see Jesus as he reveals himself and not be stumbled because there's a collision of expectation. And if John is required to have this, I think for us, we need to as well, and not assume too quickly that we know everything about Jesus. Now, for those who have John's question in life, like in our, in our, in our um, generation, those of us who want to see Jesus as a judge, we must be challenged by Jesus' revelation himself. We must not think that God's judgment is too slow when we see horrors happening. We must not condemn too quickly someone that's not savable or unsavable especially those that we don't like, when he's not even dead. I think it's important for us, if we have John's kind of question, to realize that salvation is still possible even for the worst of sinners, and as long as Christ has not come, that is another opportunity for repentance. But you know what? I suspect there's a greater danger that we are facing, which is the opposite to John. Because there are many professing Christians who like and love the idea that Jesus brings blessing and salvation, but they don't really like the idea that Jesus brings 
judgment. They love the idea that God is love. But they hate the idea that God is wrath. There are many who prefers to believe that Jesus is the Jesus of love and perhaps the good coffee, but Jesus is not the judge who will bring judgment. There was this former pastor of a mega church um, by the name Rob Bell. He wrote a book called Love Wins. I don't know if anyone has read it. Uh, in it, he drastically downplays hell and he prefers to emphasize love. You know, his version of God and of Jesus eventually leads him to kind of leave his church, go to Hollywood. He started his own show. He partnered opera to promote spirituality and supportive of same-sex marriage, amongst other things. Let me just take a look at what he says, uh, the previous one. He says, uh, when he talks about Jesus' story about Jesus, he actually says it's not exclusive, it's not exclusive to what Christians say, because we cannot claim Jesus to be ours any more than he's anybody else's. Well, he's free for all, and whoever claims him gets him. And the next one, later on as they move on, he starts with, Oprah asks him, what do you think, when is the church ready for same-sex marriage? And he goes on, and at the end of it, he just says this, okay? That the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. At some point, when your view of Jesus is of certain shape, your life is formed in that manner. Jesus says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. A person's view of Jesus affects his or her way of life. As I kind of pause here, I just want to kind of help us to think a little bit. Do we, do you and I, have certain skilled view of Jesus? Perhaps it's not so obvious in the way we speak, but in the way we live. Our view of Jesus can, does it need to be changed? The point is this. Do we come to recognize Jesus the way he reveals? Or will we get blinded by our own selective preference, our own versions of Jesus? For Jesus says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now as we move on, before anyone thinks less of John the Baptist, Jesus is the first one who says this. As the disciples were kind of living, Jesus says that John... Is a great man. In fact, verse 9, he's more than a prophet. And verse 11, Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's a very big call of this man, John. Because now among those who are born of women, prophets are those that are one of those that carries the most important role because they are the spokesperson or spokespeople of God. And among those born of women, there are some who are so great that we do not dare to compare with them. Imagine Abraham, the father of Israel, who dares to compare with Abraham? Or Moses, the rescuer, who was the recipient of God's law, who wants to be compared with Moses? Or King David, the greatest king, the one who received the eternal promised kingdom uh, through his lineage, who dares to compare himself with King David? Or King Solomon, the wisest of men, who dares to compare with him? But you know what Jesus says? Of all the all who are born of women, there are none who are great who is greater than John. The question is why is John so great? And the answer is this because John he is the fulfillment of God's prophecy of Malachi, the one who is the forerunner 
of God's Messiah King. There's a theologian by the name Leon, uh, Leon Morris. He puts it this way. In the providence of God, John the Baptist had a most important role, a role exceeded only by that of the Messiah himself. So that is how great Jesus views John. In fact, he has nothing negative to say about John, even of John's question, because how else can John fully comprehend unless Jesus explains himself? Then Jesus continues with an even more amazing statement as he continues verse 11. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. If the earlier statement is kind of shocking, this one is meant to double shock us. Jesus is saying that even the least amongst those who enter the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Jesus is not putting John down because John is already above all other men born or women, but Jesus is raising those that will come into the kingdom of heaven through him. Now what is happening? John, he is great, but he is great. He's the greatest among those of the oldest order. If you notice the story of the gospel, John is the last of the Old Testament guys, and he will not see Jesus finish his mission. In three chapters' time, he's going to die before he witnesses the completion of Jesus' mission, because he is not of the new order. He finished his job on that side um, of the Testaments. So John is there, but those who enters will be even greater. Their greatness is not by effort. Those who are great are because they view Jesus correctly and they are able to come to Jesus in the right manner. This is where we come to verse 12 to 15. It's kind of a bit of a tricky passage and takes a bit of a brain muscle. So if I kind of ask you to flex your kind of brain muscle for 90 seconds, we'll give it a shot from verse 12 to verse 15. Are you ready? Look at the passage with me. Just 90 seconds. Flex it. And here we go. Look at verse 12. Jesus goes on saying that the message of the kingdom of heaven so far has not been well received. From the moment John begins his ministry and his message about God's anointed Messiah and King, John has been facing violence up to now. As he says this, where is John? He's stuck in prison, isn't it? And you end in prison. And the key of the kingdom of heaven has always been built on what? The prophets and the laws. So here we have John, the last who carries this key of God's mystery. He is more than the other prophets because he himself is kind of almost like the doorman who kind of opened up the door as the king himself appears in the scene. And Jesus says, if you're willing to accept my words, he is the Elijah, the prophet, prophesied one in Malachi. He's the last in the old order that speaks about God. But now that I've come, all will learn about the kingdom through me. So until John, all the people look to prophets and laws. But now Jesus, the Messiah has come. All people will look to him. The role of John being the last make him the greatest of the old order but those who now comes to jesus enters a new order it goes like this because they are great and greater than john because john and the rest turns to the law and the prophets but now 
in the new order, everyone turns to the Messiah himself. They crossed not just back into the, the laws and the prophets, they entered right into the presence of the Messiah King. And that is how Jesus says about John and those who comes after they have seen the Messiah. And with that, Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear. As we kind of pause here, friends, the, the question comes back to us, actually, isn't it? That Are we people who have ears to hear what Jesus says about himself? Are we actually willing to accept the words of Jesus, what he says, or John, what he says about himself? You know, accepting or hearing is not just about kind of literally hearing it with our ears, but the willingness to actually accept it at all that he has to say for us. So, friends, what we have so far up to now is blessing and judgment. They're all kind of dependent on Jesus. The way of kingdom is all through Jesus. And the point is we should never sidestep Jesus in our attempt to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or we should never kind of construct our own versions of Jesus that many have done in our attempt to get into heaven without having to repent without having to keep what Jesus wants us to do. We kind of just create our own kind of Jesus. It looks a bit like him, but not. We actually sidetrack him and enters, thinking that we can enter the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus says that even John has to change his view. How about us? But surely by now, the crowd will have listened to Jesus, right? Whatever Jesus says, they will have accepted him. Isn't it? Because he has done great miracles, he has said great things. Surely the crowd is going to accept him. And what he says, well, apparently Jesus didn't think so, isn't it? So look at verse 16 to 19. Jesus continues, To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to others. This is what Jesus is saying. As he look at his, as the crowd, as the people, he says, This generation, they are like the children in the marketplace playing make-believe. You know how it works? You have two groups of children. One group will kind of um, play some music and the other will dance as if it's wedding. And then if the other, and they'll try again, and they'll kind of sing a dirge funeral song, and the other group of children are meant to kind of cry. And Jesus says, this is what you are. You are like those children in the marketplace. Sitting in the marketplace, and the crowd, they're shouting to John and Jesus, calling out, no, we played the pipe for you. You didn't dance. We sing the dirge. You didn't mourn. That is the case that the world or the generation is actually looking at John and Jesus. John, he was so totally focused on his mission. He doesn't eat the way with the elites or the privileged. And they say he is demon-possessed. Jesus came, he celebrated, he ate with the socially kind of outcast people. And they say he's such a glutton. So it doesn't matter. If you're like John, you're demon-possessed. If you're like Jesus, you're a kind of a glutton. But such is the rejection of John and Jesus because they don't sing and dance to their tune. Because such is the blindness of that generation. But I, I guess this is true for our generation as well. As we see even today, our world, what our world actually wants, what kind of Jesus does our world want? We want a Jesus who will dance to our music and we will cry to our singing. If you look around, this is the kind of Jesus that you see everywhere. We want a Jesus that's convenient for us, 
gives us prosperity, not suffering. We want a Jesus that gives us health, not sickness. We want a Jesus that gives us riches, not poverty. A Jesus who protects our nation against the other nations. It's about us. We want a Jesus that comes to our side. We don't really want a Jesus whereby we need to go humbly to be on His side. But that's the kind of Jesus that you just search on the net, you get and you can hear plenty of. Our world does not like a Jesus that would disagree with it. You hear plenty of Jesus, but the world does not like a Jesus that disagrees with it. This is the blindness of sin. We cannot see Jesus for who He is. We are blinded by our sin. Philip Jensen said this. I can't remember the whole thing, but I think this is uh, the gist of what he says. Philip Jensen once says this. When an unrepentant person does not want to see God, he will not see God even if God stands right in front of him. Let me say that again. When an unrepentant person does not want to see God, he will not see God even if God is standing right in front of him. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Let me just quickly think, say what I think verse 19 actually means after Jesus says this. I think Jesus is saying wisdom is proved right by her deeds. It means that those who choose wisdom, those who follow Jesus, they will be proved, they will prove to be actually kingdom people by their fruits. By their fruits, they will reveal that they are kingdom people. They'll be proven right by their fruits and not by just mere words. But fools, those who reject Jesus because he doesn't dance to their music, or to their song, their lives will condemn themselves. And with that, Jesus gives his listeners a glimpse now of a winnowing fork. That's where his winnowing fork kind of flashes a little bit from verse 20 onwards. As Jesus condemns the unrepentant. Look at verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Now how terrible it is Jesus is saying to Chorazin, to Bethsaida, to Capernaum. Because great miracles have been done in this town. But because Jesus still didn't dance their music or mourn their songs, these towns actually rejected Jesus. They refused to repent or come to Jesus. How true is it, isn't it? That if they are unrepentant, even if God stands right in front of them doing miracles, they will not see God. That's exactly what Jesus is condemning these um, towns. And Bethsaida, Bethsaida, where's Bethsaida? Bethsaida is the place where Jesus fed the 5,000. Bethsaida is the place where Jesus made the blind see. Bethsaida is actually the town of the apostles of Philip, Andrew, and Peter. And Capernaum, Capernaum is the home ground of Jesus. They think they are heading to heaven, but Jesus says they are heading to Hades. On that final day when the world must give account of their lives, the horrendous Gentile cities like the the Tyre, Sidon, and even Sodom, they will actually be better off on the final day than those who think that they are God's people. For Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, they will repent if Jesus had done what he did among God's people. But those who think they are going to heaven... They're going straight to Hades. I think kind of for us as we kind of stop and just pause here, I think the point for us is this as well, isn't that we must watch out that we do not become people who 
refuse to, to refuse to repent, because even Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, you know what? They they actually really think that they are God's people. They even say, "I know God's name. I can tell you the story of God. I can tell you the story of Moses. I can tell you stories about what the Bible has says." And Jesus says they are going to Hades. May we not end up in that situation because of unrepentance that we create our own version of Jesus and we actually are heading in the wrong direction. For our generation, we must not create our version of Jesus or God as Rob Bell and actually many others. They, they think by their imaginations, God will not judge them. By writing a book that love wins, how can God be both loving and kind of judging? He's kind of a schizo. And then he said, God actually loves the whole world. That doesn't solve the problem. That doesn't mean by writing a kind of award-winning book, you end up in heaven. But very much we will face the shock of Hades. We have the wrong version of Jesus. But listening to the, listen to the frightening words of Jesus in verse 24, and take it as a kind of warning for all who listens, Jesus says to those who claim to be God's people, I tell you, it will be more variable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So it's kind of stick stock for our lives and as we look around, what version of Jesus do you and I have? And how do we respond to Jesus? Because He is not going to conform to the music and songs of the world. He is not going to look like the Jesus on our t-shirts or our TV shows. But he expects us to change and reform our understanding if we get it wrong. So if this is how Jesus reveals himself, how must we understand and respond to him? That's where we look at the last of today's passage. To understand and respond rightly to Jesus, we now listen in on the conversation between Jesus and God and Jesus' words to us. So look now with me to the last portion of today's passage, verse 25 to 30, that we first of all understand God reveals His ways to little children. Look at 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. First of all, Jesus telling us that God is pleased to reveal great things to children or to those like children, meaning those who are lowly in status and those who are totally dependent on others. It's not the wise or learner in this world who will get access to God, but the lowly and dependent. Well, it doesn't mean the wise and the kind of learner cannot have access to God, but it does mean that they cannot enter or access God by human wisdom or human achievement or capability. If the wise and the learned wants to have access to God's way, the only way is through the same way as the little children, the lowly and total dependent children. It shall not be from the ways like those who pick a few verses of scripture and create their own version of God and their own way to heaven. But Jesus says it pleases the Father that it is to the children who gets to understand the way to his kingdom. 
And how must we respond? Must respond like the little children. Now the question is, what must we respond to? And Jesus' reply will be, it's not what you respond to, but it's who you respond to. Look at verse 27, as we understand that God only reveals His way through the Son. Verse 27, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So John the Baptist and those before him, they have no direct access to God. They, their access to God is through the laws, through the prophets, and sometimes through the angels. But in the new order, all who comes and wants to know God, access God through the Messiah himself, because God has already committed everything to Jesus the Son. And it's Jesus the Son who will choose to reveal himself to us. Now the question is, okay, Jesus chose to reveal himself to us. How do we know who Jesus would choose? Who would Jesus choose to reveal himself? Look at the last portion of the passage. Verse 28, 29, 28 to 30. What did Jesus say? Let me read this to you and see if you catch it. Verse 28. Come to me, all the wise and learned, the moral and confident, the religious and charismatic Come to me. Is that what Jesus says? Surely not, isn't it? If you are looking at the passage, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Who would Jesus choose to reveal the Father? In fact, reveal the kingdom and reveal Himself. He will reveal it to the weary and the burdened. The weary and the burdened in Jesus' time are those who long to come to God, but they could not. They carry the yoke of Moses' law, and then the Pharisees and the scribes add more on their shoulders, and it is unbearable. Those who are weary and burdened are not like those that we see, such as Rob Bell and the rest, because what they need is just to write another new book, another new way to find God. They do not have to they do not have to repent, they do not have to confess, they have to create a new way and a new Jesus. But those who refuse to, who wants to come to God, they can't, they are weary and burdened. Because no matter what they do, they can never be good enough to come to God. They dare not look up to heaven. They beat their chest and say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. To these weary ones, Jesus says, come to me, put down the yoke of trying to get to God yourselves and the weight of sin. And exchange, take my yoke upon you Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. The yoke of Jesus is the teachings of Jesus. The yoke of the law is an attempt to earn our way to heaven. The yoke of Jesus is coming to his teachings in response to him accepting us as his. Jesus says he's not a hard master like the Lord. He's a gentle and humble Messiah King who offers us rest 
because he has already suffered for us. The yoke of law ends up in judgment because we can never manage. The yoke of Jesus leads up to the kingdom of heaven because he promises us rest for our souls. So if you are those that refuse to create your own way to heaven, who refuse to create another version of Jesus, if you are those who are weary and burdened, Jesus says, I give you rest. If your heart is those who are troubled by sin and you long for it to be removed, Jesus says, take my yoke, learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. The place that we can find rest for our wearied soul is to come to Jesus because He has full access to the Father. He has full access to the resources of the Father and He can give us the rest. So kind of let me conclude this passage as we come back to our first question. What is our version of Jesus? Because Jesus reveals that He's the one who is both salvation and judgment. He's the one who reveals Himself and reveals God. He is the one who paves the way and allows those who come to Him to receive salvation of their soul. That is what Jesus says of Himself. And how do we approach Him? Like the little children in humble, total dependence on Him, that we cannot bear the yoke of the law, we cannot bear a yoke of trying to get to God by ourselves, but we will take the yoke of Christ and His teachings because He has already received us when He offers us to be His disciples. So will we approach Jesus the right way? It is simple. That's so simple that little children can get in. But if the wise and the learned tries, they have to do like the children and not their own ways. So let me just close this time in prayer and we can engage on the passage Q&A if you have any. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.